Well, we are here this morning uh, talking about the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 3 of God's uh, Eternal Decree. Now, uh, by way of introduction, I just want to read to us, uh, not from the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, but from the Westminster Larger Catechism. And I will use this opportunity uh, to make a little plug for this book. Uh, This is a book called uh, The Harmony of the Westminster Confession and Catechisms by Morton Smith. Uh, Morton Smith was a professor. He's actually the founder of... um, I think Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson and also Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. He was one of uh, Pastor Mike's professors. And what he does in here is he, uh, he puts the Confession of Faith, Larger Catechism, and Shorter Catechism side by side, organized by doctrine, so you can see what each of them have to say about any given topic. It's very useful for study. And so uh, I would recommend this book to you uh, for your own library. But this morning, I want to begin by reading... Um, because I looked in this book, a really helpful definition of God's decree, God's eternal decree, from Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, question 12. It says this, God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will, whereby from all eternity he has for his own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time, especially concerning angels and men. I think you have that in your outline there. And so what this tells us before we actually get into the confession of faith, when we'll get into a little bit more detail, is that God's decrees uh, have a few characteristics. Number one, and these, things that we, these are things that we need to keep in mind as we study this. Uh, number one, they are wise, they are free. In other words, they are not uh, conditioned upon anything outside God. And they are holy. They're wise, free, and holy. They are acts of God's will. And because they are free acts of God's will, they are not uh, reactions to anything. They are eternal. In other words, uh, they were established before the world began. They are glorious. They are unchangeable. And they are efficacious. They accomplish uh, whatever it is uh, they set out to do, whatever it is God sets out to do. Now, as we come to the doctrine of God's eternal decree, uh, I think it's important to note that at this point in the confession, and again, we are only in chapter 3 of 33, so it's very early in the confession. It's at this point in the confession uh, that that we are setting ourselves apart here uh, as Reformed orthodoxy from all other systems of doctrine. Uh, many other systems of doctrine, be it um, Arminianism or Pelagianism or whatever ism you can think of, uh, many other systems of doctrine do not uh, believe in anything like God's eternal, unchangeable, efficacious decree. Um, there are some systems of theology that do affirm God's decree, but even then, uh, they don't define it in the way the Westminster Confession and the other Reformed Confessions do. Uh, For example, uh, they would say that God's decree is not free, but it is conditional. It is based on something outside God himself. Uh, They would say it's not eternal, but it's based on actions done in time. They would say it's not unchangeable, but it's rather changeable. And they would say it's not efficacious, but God's decree is actually thwartable. That some creature or uh, even Satan himself 
also being a creature, can thwart God's uh, decree. And so at this point, as, as we go through this uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 3, uh, we've hit really our first point of controversy. Uh, so far, with, with uh, minor exceptions, we don't really enter into much controversy in chapter 1 on Scripture. We don't really run into controversy in chapter 2 on the Holy Trinity. It's at this point, speaking of God's eternal decree, where we hit controversy. And this is, as I said, what sets Reformed theology, or part of what sets Reformed theology apart uh, from many other systems of doctrine, most pointedly Arminianism, which is really in this area of the country, in fact, maybe most areas of the country, is what is the most prevalent system of doctrine. And so, as I said in, in my introduction uh, lecture a few weeks ago, I'm not going to get into polemics. I'm going to try not to get into polemics. Uh, rather, I just want to expound what the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches. And just keep in mind that uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith is distinctively reformed here. It's distinctively reformed. And so with that in mind, by way of introduction, I want to start looking uh, section by section through Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read each section beforehand. If you want to, there is a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith in the back of your Trinity hymnal. I can't remember. It's in the 800s. It's like 846 or something like that. Uh, you can follow along uh, if you want. And so uh, I, I can take questions in the middle. So if you have one, please raise your hand. You won't, be, uh, you won't bother me a bit. And I'll try to make sure we get done on time. All right. Westminster Chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to try to give headings, and you can see these in your outline, give headings to each paragraph. And so section one, what section one is doing is it is defining God's decree. It's defining God's decree. And so what I want to do is I want to read section one here. The divines say, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather they are established. So this defines God's decree for us. The decrees of God are his acts and counsel whereby he brings about whatever happens. It's universal. It encompasses everything. Whatever happens in the past, present, future, whatever happens in time, happens by the decree of God. And God decreed these things in eternity past, before any of these things happened. Now, with that in mind, uh, immediately some objections are raised. And so uh, what the Westminster Confession of Faith gives us here is three caveats about what God's decree does not mean. The first thing it tells us is that uh, God, by his eternal counsel and will, bringing about whatever happens, uh, does not make God the author of sin. It doesn't make God the author of sin. Uh, God himself, Scripture tells us, does not and cannot sin. It's against his nature. Uh, sin is not designed by God. Now... Here's the question, and feel free to answer. 
does God decree sin? Yes, he absolutely does. God decrees sin. Is God the author of sin? No. Whatever sin is committed is the fault of the creature. The creature is accountable. The creature is responsible. God is not responsible for it, although he does decree it. And so whatever good there is in the world, whatever good there is uh, in any of us, is solely because of God. And whatever wickedness and evil there is in us or in the world is the responsibility and the fault of the creature. Now, um, you might still have questions in your mind. Uh, I'll hopefully clear those up in time, but that's what the Westminster Confession of Faith tells us, is that this does not mean God is the author of sin. God is not the author of sin. The second thing it tells us by way of caveat is that uh, the creature's will is not violated by God's decree. There's no disagreement between God's decree and human freedom. There's no disagreement. There's no conflict here. If you want a little bit more info on this, you can look ahead to Westminster Confession, chapter 9, where it goes into more detail here. Now, how exactly this works out, where there's no conflict, I'm not exactly sure. But this is what the scriptures teach. So, for example, you can see uh, Isaiah 10 cited in your outline there. Listen to what Isaiah 10 says in verses 5 to 7 and verse 12. God says this, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, of God's anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation, Israel. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize loot and and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. So who is sending the Assyrians? God is. In fact, he describes them uh, later on as the axe in his hand. But, God says, this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. And then God says in verse 12 here, When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, this is the Lord speaking, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. And so we see here this perfect picture of of God's decree and sovereignty and human freedom coexisting without conflict. That's what scripture teaches. The third thing that we are taught by uh, section one here, uh, God is not the author of sin. The creaturely will is not violated. The third thing, second causes are not taken away, but rather established. Now, you're probably wondering what second causes are. God is the first cause. That's a little bit of uh, Aristotelian philosophy there. God is the first cause, meaning he is the uh, the, the primary cause behind all things. He's the first one that moves. Second causes are those things God works by. And so, for example, uh, he moves the waves by means of the wind. And so when we look on the ocean, we say, well, the wind is causing these waves. And so we see causality there, but that's a second cause. God is the first cause over it all. And so what the confession here is saying is that these second causes are not taken away. They're real. And rather, they're actually established 
The only reason we can even say that th one thing causes another is because of God's decree. So I'll, I'll give you an example, uh, an example that I learned from um, listening to Greg Bonson. Uh, he likes to give this in his apologetic debates. Uh, he'll say, think about when you wake up in the morning, you go to the bathroom and you take out the toothpaste tube out of the drawer and your toothbrush, you squeeze the tube and toothpaste comes out. Uh, why do you walk in there and you never ask the question, I wonder if when I squeeze the tube, uh, is toothpaste really going to come out this morning? You don't think that. And the reason why is because of God's decree. If God had not decreed, the toothpaste may or may not come out tomorrow. But because of God's decree and working through second causes, uh, that thing, that is actually established. And so really, God's decree is really the basis of science. Science could not be done apart from God's decree. Uh, science relies upon the uniformity of nature, which is established by God's decree. Does that make sense? So second causes are actually uh, established by God's decree. Uh, any questions before we move on to section two? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I don't have a scholastic distinction here, uh, but the way I think of it is that author um, author has this idea bound up with it uh, evil intention. Uh, God has no evil intention in decreeing sin. Uh, you can think of Joseph and his brothers in Genesis fifty. Joseph tells his brothers, uh, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. The same word is used there, the same Hebrew word. What you meant for evil against me, God meant for good. And so we can see that both Joseph's brothers and God are working in that same action, but the t intentions are different. Mm -hmm. And if they had done that by saying, God, what do you want us to do? Like if, if it had been the king of Israel who was punishing the Israelites because God said, I am upset with these people, tear down their high places and their Asherah poles, and the king of Israel had decided, yes, I will obey God and I will punish the people for what they have done because it is God's will that they not do these things. There might have been a difference Sure. I mean, and we see that in the Old Testament. I mean, I mean, uh, God uses Assyria and Israel in the same ways to do the same things, uh, but the the outcome is different. Yeah. One more, and then we have got to move on. Would it be helpful to point out that that sin sin is the result of of have God having made a mutable creature, a creature who could or could not. Yeah. The question would be probably early to ask is why did God make a mutable Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is something we really don't have time to <laughs> to go into. All right, let's move on to section two. We've got to hurry along here. Section two. Section two gives us the basis of God's decree. The basis of God's decree. Here's section two. Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet has he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, 
or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. And so the thing to take away from this here, to kind of summarize this, is that the basis of God's decree is his own will and pleasure. The basis of God's decree is his own will and pleasure. It's not anything outside of himself. God knows uh, what can come to pass upon any given condition. He knows that if A happens, B will happen. And he knows if C happens, then D would happen. He knows that. But God's decree is not based upon any of those contingencies. It is not as though God has multiple worlds that he's choosing from that just kind of web out and say, and he has all these outcomes at the end that he might want. And he says, oh, that's the best outcome. I'm going to choose this path of events. That's not what God's doing. Uh, that's been commonly called middle knowledge, or if you're a Latin scholar, scientia media. Uh, that was uh, condemned by, as far as I know, all the Reformed confessions, uh, this middle knowledge doctrine. Rather, whatever happens, happens because that's what God wanted, it, wanted to happen directly. Yes, and it's good because God wanted it to happen. Now, uh, this, this can be hard to swallow because if we ask questions like, well, um, could 9-11 have not happened? The answer is no. It could not have not happened. That's not just one of the, that's not just collateral damage because, the, because God chose some world from which he wanted a certain outcome. God didn't decree the world, he decreed the event. And so whatever happens, the practical takeaway from this is whatever happens, it could not and cannot be otherwise because of God's decree. It's certain, it's eternal, and it's unchangeable. And God's decree is based on his own will and pleasure. Section three. Section three is uh, on predestination. So we're narrowing the focus a little bit here. Predestination. Here's what section 3 says. By the decree of God for the, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. And so here again we have the introduction of predestination into this topic of the decrees of God. Narrowing our focus just a little bit. The definition of predestination is simply this. It's God's decree concerning men and angels. That's predestination. Uh, it, typically in theology, uh, we distinguish between predestination and foreordination. Uh, both are by God's decree. Both are eternal. Both are efficacious. But typically, foreordination... I say typically because it's not always the case, but typically foreordination has to do with everything but men and angels, and predestination has to do with uh, rational creatures, men and angels. And so, for example, when you open up your King James Bible and you see the word for predestination, I think it occurs six times in the New Testament, sometimes it's translated predestinated, and sometimes it's translated determined beforehand. And it really just depends on, <coughs> excuse me, if it's talking about uh, men and angels or events. Now, uh, the, the point I want to make here, I have often wondered why the divines here 
say that the saved are predestinated and the reprobate are foreordained. You can see that distinction being made here in section 3. This really brings up the question of equal ultimacy. Oh, thank you, sir. You're a very kind brother. This, this brings up the question of what is, what's commonly called equal ultimacy. And that's the question of, does God work in the same way predestinating the saved and foreordaining the reprobate to their, to their respective destinations? Does God work in the same way? Well, I have a few things to say to that question. The first thing I want to say is that the final destiny of all men and angels is certain. It is certain. It's decreed by God from all eternity, saved as well as lost. Because logically speaking, if God chooses a certain number, a certain specific number, by name, people who will be saved, then by logical necessity, he's consigning the rest by his decree and by his choice uh, to reprobation and to condemnation. It's logical necessity. I don't see any way around it. God's decree concerns both. God's, God decrees the salvation of the saved and the damnation of the lost. But here's what I think the Westminster Confession of Faith is saying by distinguishing predestination and foreordination in this instance. I think what it's saying is that those that are saved are saved because of God's predestination. And those that are lost are not lost because God did not predestine them. They are lost because of their own sin. Even though both is certain, the saved and the reprobate, both are certain. I think what the Westminster Confession of Faith is guarding against here is, by, is those who would say, well, so-and-so is condemned only because God didn't predestine him. That's not true. Now, granted, God's decree makes it certain, but any, anyone who's condemned is condemned because of their own sin by God's decree. And that is the next note in my notes. Yeah. So the way, <laughs> literally have it right here. You've done that more than once. You and I, you, you and I, you and I think alike, brother. We're, uh, we're lockstep here. The Westminster Confession of Faith does say later that God passes the wicked by. That's all he has to do. Now, it's by his decree and sovereign good pleasure, but God passes them by. They are foreordained to death, but they go to death not, be, uh, not because... God foreordained them, even though he did. They go because of their own sin, which God, by his most holy, wise, and sovereign will, left them in. Does that make sense? Okay. I keep moving here. We're about halfway through. Section four, the effect of predestination. The effect of predestination. Here's what it says. These angels and men, thus predestinated and foreordained, are particularly, that is individually, and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Those predestined unto life will be saved, and only those predestined unto life will be saved. No more, no less. 
Now, you might be thinking, uh, just try to make this practical, you might be thinking, well, doesn't that make missions pointless? If God is predestined a certain, and people have asked this question before, uh, many people in the past, if, if these things are true about God's decree, then why go out into all the world if, if those who are saved or those who God, have, God has decreed to be saved will be saved anyways? Well, here's the answer. <laughs> the first thing I have to say is, is actually a correction. It is not true that those whom God has decreed to save will be saved anyway because God ordains the end that they will be saved as well as the means. So it's second causes. So it's not true that those whom God has decreed to be saved will be saved anyway, that is, apart from whatever. They will be saved because God has ordained the end as well as the means. Yes, by gospel preaching, Romans 10. But second thing, uh, secondly, uh, I think the, the doctrine of God's decree is actually a great motivation to missions. For this reason, uh, without God's decree, missions would never work. They would never, they would never be successful. Nobody would ever come. But with God's decree, you go out and witness, you go out and preach, you go out and proclaim the gospel, and God has said. Uh, well, Christ has said, all those whom the Father has given to me will come. They will. It's certain. And so this is actually a guarantee that the preaching of the gospel will work. Now, for many it's not going to work, but it will work for some. And so it's actually a great motivation to missions. If it weren't for the, this, this is the, the wonderful thing about Reformed theology and really the misunderstanding is... Um, you know, historically, mission work has been largely carried out by Calvinists. You think of William Carey. I mean, we're reading, the men's group is reading about uh, five pioneer missionaries, all of whom were Reformed, as far as I'm, as far as I'm aware. Uh, they believed in God's decree, absolutely. And they, uh, they did much great mission work. Section 5. Section 5, election. This is what it says. Those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love. (laughs) Just an amazing list of qualifiers here, isn't it? Without any foresight of faith or good works or uh, perseverance in either of them, or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. And so we're narrowing down even further here. We started talking about God's decree, and then we went into predestination of men and angels, and now we're talking about the election particularly of men and women and children to salvation. Now again, section 5 here is really just outlining again for us the basis of God's electing someone. The reason why God elects anyone to salvation. And again, the main thing to keep in mind here is it's not because of anything outside of God. It's before the world was made, including all of us. It's according to his eternal and immutable, that is unchangeable purpose. It's on the basis of his will and good pleasure. And it happens, this is an important thing to note, it happens in Christ. 
Uh, none of this happens outside of or apart from Christ. Nobody is elected outside of Christ. Uh, salvation, I'll make this point a little bit later, but salvation is a whole. It's a whole unit. And it happens in union with Christ. And so election is in Christ. And election is given freely. It's on the basis of God's love. It's not on the basis. It is not, 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 not on the basis of anything God has foreseen in us. Because let's be honest. What's the only thing God has foreseen in us? Wickedness. It's the only thing God has foreseen. Well, aside from whatever God works in us by his good pleasure, if he saves us. And so just by way of application here, you know, people usually look at the, at the reform doctrine of election, and I say reform because there are other doctrines of election, depending on what theological system one may align with. Uh, I believe the reformed is biblical. But people look at the reformed doctrine of election and they think, what a, what a terrible, cold, and calculated doctrine. What an awful thing to believe. Well, I would say that election is actually the greatest comfort in all the world. In fact, anytime election is brought up in the scriptures, it's, it's brought up to give believers comfort. Because the reality is, if God didn't choose, if God didn't choose someone to be saved, they would never be saved. If God didn't choose me or you, uh, there's no hope. So it's really a, a doctrine of great comfort. That's why Peter instructs us to make our calling an election sure. Uh, not, not, that doesn't mean to make our calling an election more certain. It's already certain, but he's saying make it more sure to you because it's a great comfort. All right, section six. I'm trucking along here because I want to open up for questions for the last 10 minutes or so. Section six. Election in relation to salvation. Election in relation to salvation. Here's what it says. As God has appointed the elect unto glory, so has he by the eternal and most free purpose of his will. They keep hammering that, don't they? Like This is all by God's purpose and pleasure and will, nothing else. God foreordained all the means thereunto. Therefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his spirit working in due season. They are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. Reformed theology is often accused of believing in this doctrine called once saved, always saved. Now, in, in the bare sense of the word, that is true. Once you are saved, you are forever saved. Like it, it can't change. But that's often not what once saved, always saved means. Uh, there are many who unfortunately believe, uh, most perniciously, that uh, once you are saved, once you get your ticket punched to heaven, uh, therefore you can just live however you, you merry well please. 
You can live in sin. You can live in debauchery and adultery and all, the, all these things. You'll still go to heaven because once saved, always saved. And many have accused ref, uh, Reformed folks of believing that. Well, this paragraph that I just read here destroys that idea. It utterly uh, annihilates it. Anybody who, uh, anybody who accuses Reformed theology of believing this just simply hasn't read the Westminster Confession of Faith. They just haven't read it, or at least they haven't read it carefully. Salvation, as I said earlier, is a unit. Uh, some theologians, I think it was William Perkins, said it is a golden chain, an unbreakable chain. And it's worked and made certain by God from beginning to end. He ordains the end as well as the means. And so, no one is justified who has, who, whom God has not elected. No one is elected who will, who will not be sanctified. That's what destroys this whole once saved, always saved thing. If you're elected, this is what the confession is saying, if you've been elected by God, you will be sanctified uh, without deviation. Okay? Now, there are different degrees of sanctification, as we'll talk about in many later chapters. But you will be sanctified, and you will persevere. The point here is that you cannot compartmentalize salvation. You can't, you can't compartmentalize it. Now, for the sake of theology, you can talk about the various parts of salvation. You can talk about election and justification and adoption and sanctification and talk about them separately, but you can't actually separate them in reality. It's all one indestructible, inseparable work that's worked by God in Christ through his Spirit. And so those who, uh, whom God has chosen uh, will certainly be justified, adopted, sanctified, etc., etc., etc. To which we can say, by way of application, I'll get to you in just a second, uh, if somebody claims that they have been saved and they are outside of the church, they live in sin, there's no fruit of regeneration in them whatsoever, we can say, well, <laughs> it certainly appears God has not chosen you for salvation because of this very truth right here. Yes, sir? Yes. If you're seeing the fruits of the Spirit, you can be more certain that this person is saved. If you're seeing no fruits of the Spirit, then you can be more certain that they're not saved. You can still not deny ability to judge a person. Yeah, you will know them by their fruits. Yep, you will know them by their fruits. Yep, absolutely. Any other questions or comments? We'll move on to section 7 here. Let's talk about section 7. Reprobation. Here's what it says. The rest of mankind, that is, uh, all those who are not elect unto salvation, who have not been predestinated unto life, the rest of mankind, God was pleased, according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, again, (laughs) It's every point, according to his own will, according to his own will, according to his own will. God was pleased, according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extends or withholds mercy as he pleases, read Romans 9, for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin, to the praise of his glorious justice. The other side of election is reprobation. 
And there are a few things to note here about reprobation. The first thing is this, and we've already said this. uh, God is said to pass by the reprobate. God passes by the reprobate. This is biblical language. If you read Romans 1, you'll see uh, Paul saying that these people who have, you know, they worship four-footed beasts and, and they perverted their bodies. God says, uh, or Paul says, because they did not see fit to acknowledge God in their minds, God gave them up. Another way you could say that is God passed them by to a reprobate mind. In other words, he leaves them to develop in their own sin and to get further and further and further in it. And that just shows you really the nature of sin in mankind. If God leaves you alone, which is what most people want God to do, if God leaves you alone, you're in trouble. The only way anybody is ever saved is if God actively intervenes. To be left alone by God is is the most dangerous situation you could possibly be in. The second thing, so God passes by the reprobate. The second thing, and we've already said this, the Westminster Confession of Faith is very clear here. Look what it says. God ordains the reprobate to dishonor and wrath. Why? For their sin. Again, I I think this supports the point I was trying to make earlier where uh, there is, in my mind, an equal ultimacy regarding the certainty of the destination of all men and angels. But the reason why anybody ends up in hell is for their sin. It's not because God did not predestinate them. Nobody will be able to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and say, uh, I'm being condemned by you because you didn't save me. No, you're condemned for your own sin. And the third thing we have to note here as it finishes this section is that all of this is for God's glory. Election is to the praise of God's glorious grace. We'll see this in Ephesians 1, which I'll read here in just a moment. Election is to the praise of God's glorious grace, and reprobation is to the praise of God's glorious justice. See, one of the reasons God both elects and reprobates people is because uh, each of these highlight certain aspects of God's character, namely his grace and his justice. If God condemns no one for their sin... Uh, not only would his justice not be praised, his justice would be rightly scorned. Because uh, a holy God who does not deal with sin is not holy. But God deals with sin. And eternally so. Yes, sir? Yeah, I think it raises the point here that why, why would God bypass some and, and elect the others? And, and he was phrase according to to the unsearchable counsel. Yep. So there's a question, there's, a, there's, a, there's something that we don't know exactly why. Yeah. Uh, but it goes again back to the fact that the bigger question is why did God make a beautiful creature who could sin to start with? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and in all. And, 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 and one of the answers to that is this that, that if there had been a better way of doing it, God would have done it. And then eventually it goes back to the matter of faith because then you've got to determine whether you believe that the God who did it was a good God. Yeah. If he was a good God, he wouldn't have, there wouldn't have been a better way of doing it because he would be less than God 
if he didn't do it the way he did it. Yeah, and so another way of saying that is not only if there had been a better way, God would have done it, but because that's what God did, it's by definition the best way. Yeah, so, so, so it's like flip side. It's, it's the same thing said different ways. And if you want to see, uh, I, I appreciate you emphasizing the fact that the divines here said that this is all according to the unsearchable counsel of God's will. If you want to see this worked out, even in somebody as great as the Apostle Paul, just read Romans 9 through 11, where Paul's dealing with this, this matter of election and salvation and what about, what about Israel, what about the Jews. And in the end, at the end of uh, Romans 11, Paul just says, uh, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Uh, and then he goes on to continue to praise him. It's just, even the Apostle Paul, uh, this just uh, struck him with uh, dumbfounding wonder. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't understand it fully. And uh, maybe we'll understand it in glory. Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, but this is all by the unsearchable counsel and will of God. Let's move on. Last section, uh, section 8, the use of the doctrine of predestination, the use of the doctrine of predestination. This is what uh, the, the confession says. And this is an important section. Uh, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. Again, election is for the purpose of assurance in believers. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. And so uh, I want to point a few things out. Uh, people often cite this uh, rightly, this section to say, well, you need to be careful with the doctrine of predestination. You need to, you need to deal with it uh, with, with prudence and special care. But one thing that's commonly missed is that the confession says this doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled. I got this point from Joe Moorcraft when I was listening to his lectures through the Westminster Confession, He's, and he rightly said, we can't forget that the, the doctrine of predestination is to be handled carefully and with prudence, but it is to be handled. It's not to be hidden. It's not to be uh, not talked about. Uh, what the divines here are contending against, and they wouldn't have called it this, but you've probably heard the phrase cage-stage Calvinism. Pastor Mike has used it several times. It's these people that are this stage that people find themselves in commonly. When they discover these doctrines for themselves, they just rage against everything. Uh, so anything that's not Reformed theology, they just, they just attack and assault. And, and you know, it's, it's worthy of assault, but not in, uh, not in the way they typically do it, not in the angry way. And so it needs to be handled with special prudence and care, uh, but it needs to be handled. It shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't be like, oh, well, let's not talk about predestination. We need to talk about it. And it needs to be preached as well. Uh, many, many preachers are afraid to even mention it. In fact, some preachers are even afraid to read biblical passages that talk about it from their pulpits. And that is uh, very unfortunate. The purpose of the doctrine of election and predestination is not pride. It's not to build up pride in, in any of us. It's not a litmus test for another person's salvation. Just because somebody does not believe in predestination and election the way you do does not necessarily mean it could be a sign, but it's certainly not a litmus test that somebody isn't saved. 
there are many people who do not reform, who do not hold to the, and did not hold to the reform doctrine of election and predestination, who uh, I believe will be uh, closer to the throne of God than I'll ever hope to be. And the purpose of election is not, for, is not a way for you to distinguish yourself theologically from others in a prideful way, okay? This isn't... The doctrine of election, ironically, it doesn't cause pride, but it has been the occasion of pride. And the ironic thing is that the doctrine of election and predestination utterly destroys pride. Because there is nothing in you or me, nothing whatsoever that God saw and said, oh, I'm going to choose him because of that, or I'm going to choose her because she's like this. No. It's all because of God's unsearchable will and counsel. The purpose of the doctrine of election is, the Westminster Confession of Faith says, to stand in awe of God's free grace, to encourage loving obedience unto God, because you are his forever, if he's chosen you, and unchangingly so, is to have assurance of salvation. And I want you to notice the pastoral warmth here that the divines end with. This is what they say. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, and diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. That's the doctrine of God's eternal decree. It's a, it's a wonderful doctrine. It's not something that we should shy away from. It's something that we should... Uh, speak to very uh, fervently and joyfully. Um, I had a little bit more to talk about. Um, I, I just don't have time. I want to open up the floor to questions and then we have to get into worship. But I do want to mention, I have, I don't know if Pastor Mike did this with his outline, but in each one of my outlines, I try to give you a list of helpful resources um, at, at the end there in some smaller print. And so uh, if you want to check those out, I think some of those books might be in our library, our small but growing library. Um, and so you can, uh, you can check those out and, uh, and look. I do want to read one, um, one passage of Scripture. I did say I was going to read Ephesians chapter 1, and I think this will kind of sum, in, uh, sum all this up. I just want to read part of Ephesians 1. one of those Bibles, if you flip two pages, you skip three books. Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him, as in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, everything, according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Amen. Uh, let me close in prayer. And Well, actually, uh, do we have any questions? Any comments or questions? Yes, sir.
Yeah. You know, John Calvin has a good, uh, when he talks about the doctrine of election and predestination, um, he has a good statement that I, I, I try myself to live by in terms of doing theology. And I'm not quoting him, but he essentially says, uh, where God shuts his holy mouth, uh, we shut ours. Uh, there's, there's nothing we can say to him. Um, another thing to keep in mind is Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things he has revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we um, may do his will. Um, there are secret things that belong to the Lord and that we, and as Paul says in Romans 11, um, that are unsearchable and that we, uh, we can't know. God is incomprehensible. Uh, he's not uh, beyond understanding what he has revealed, but he's incomprehensible. And I think he'll, he's, he will remain incomprehensible even in glory. Uh, one, more, one more question or comment. Yeah. yeah he's, he's asking, that's a good question, um, can we meditate on these things? And I would say yes. Uh, and we should meditate on these things. I would just distinguish between meditation and speculation. Um, speculation is bad. Um, that's one thing that I, that I, I think Calvin was really unique among uh, Reformed theologians is that he hated speculative theology. He hated it, and I think we should hate it. Um, uh, we should not speculate. Uh, what, but what God has revealed, absolutely meditate on and love it. Um, let's, uh, let's close in prayer, and, and we'll uh, move on into worship. Our God in heaven, we bless your most holy name, and we confess that your, your will is unsearchable. Your counsel and plans are inscrutable. We can't understand you fully. We can't grasp uh, your mind fully. But we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. And you have revealed uh, much of your purposes to us. And we pray that the things that you've revealed to us would be occasions of praise and wonder and awe. And we pray that, uh, as we said just a moment ago, where you uh, have not seen fit to reveal things to us, we pray that we would... Uh, sit in sanctified silence, uh, meditating on your goodness, and most of all, uh, praising you for uh, revealing yourself to us in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom uh, your people's sins are forgiven and they are saved forever. We pray in all this in Christ's name. Amen.